0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers.
1: This week on Science for the People, we're talking about those who get conned and those who do the fleecing. We're speaking with Maria Konnikova about her latest book, The Confidence Game, why we fall for it every time. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a writer with Science News and Society for Science in the Public. This week, I'm here with Maria Konnikova, a contributing writer for The New Yorker, whose pieces have also appeared in Smithsonian, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. She's the author of the book Mastermind and the new book, The Confidence Game, why we fall for it every time. Maria, it's great to have you here.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Bethany.
1: Your book talks about cons or confidence games. And in it, you talk about famous con men and women who have sold millions of dollars in fake art and performed surgery with medical degrees they didn't have. And you also talk about small cons, um, including things like three-card Monty and psychics. And all of these activities, though they're nefarious, are actually very diverse. What is a confidence game?
2: Well, the actual term confidence game has been around for a few centuries, um, and the first known use we have of it, comes from this lovely gentleman um, in early 1800s New York who would walk around the streets of Manhattan and had a very fanciful request for people so he was very dapper kind of very well dressed and he'd approach other likewise dapper gentlemen and say have you confidence in me to lend me your watch until tomorrow and if you think about it I mean what a crazy request it's he's not just because he's asking people for their watch but the way It's phrased. I mean, have you confidence in me? So, what kind of a person are you? Do you trust other people? What kind of a world do you want to live in? Is it a world where, you know, gentlemen like us can have gentlemen's agreements? And it worked. People would give him their watches. Um, And by the time he was caught, um, William Thompson had dozens upon dozens of watches in his possession, hence the origin of the term. The confidence man, someone who to whom you give your confidence, so have you confidence in me? have you trust in me he 's not stealing he didn 't pickpocket anyone he didn 't take anyone 's watch he didn 't force anyone to give him a watch it 's a simple proposition of trust, and you give him your trust um, because that 's the kind of person you are so that is what a confidence game is about it 's not about confidence in the in the the sense of being confident in something. It's all about giving your confidence to someone else.
1: Okay. So, but you know, many people give confidence to other people every day and Mm -hmm. don't lose all their money. So it's it's about misplaced (laughs) confidence.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, It's about, it's about people who use their confidence uh, it's about people who use your confidence for their own private ends and as you correctly say meaning you use the term nefarious they often are very nefarious ends so you give them your confidence but it's under false pretenses even though you don't realize it and they will be taking that confidence and exploiting that confidence and one of the most nefarious things is that they will do it in such a way that you won't realize your confidence has been exploited um, even when people point it out to you and that's um, that's a little bit heartbreaking in a way. That's why people often get conned multiple times, because they refuse to believe that that it could happen. They refuse to believe that someone could actually take advantage of their trust in such an egregious fashion.
1: And in your book, you talk about several stages to a real confidence game to, you know, there's a process to people running through Someone else's trust, um, can you run us through those stages because they have kind of funny names <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh the the vocabulary is just absolutely beautiful, and I actually stole um, the the terms from David Moore, who was a linguist um, who spent multiple decades in the 20s and 30s with con artists. Um, and he wrote this book that came out in 1940, I believe, called The Big Con, um, where he really delved into kind of the psychology, not the psychology, but um, rather the vocabulary of con artists. You know, how do they actually talk and how does that help us, you know, understand what they do. Um, and so I took all of the terms from him because he had actually spent his time with the best of the best and they are, they are incredible. Um, I really, um, I really have to hand it to, to grifters. They, they know how to call stuff, um, for it to really show you exactly what it is. So, so the first stage, um, is something called the put up and, it's just, it's basically a good old psychological evaluation. So this is when they really not just scope out the victim, but figure out, you know, what is it about the victim that makes her tick? What does she want? What's her motivation? You know, what, what is it that really drives her vision of the world? What does she want to believe to be true? So this is really about not just finding weaknesses, but figuring out what your worldview is, what your hopes and dreams are. Because the, something that you have to understand about con games is that it's all about selling you the world that you already believe in, um, which is not the world that actually exists. Um, and so they, they really drill down before they've ever met the person before they've ever really had any interaction with them. They figure out, you know, what is it about this person that makes her vulnerable? And so that's in some ways, one of the most important, if not the most important steps of the game, because if you do well, then you're very well prepared to do the rest of it. Um, And if you don't, then no matter how persuasive you are, you won't have the right story for this particular person. So after you've, after you've kind of identified um, and profiled your victim, um, the next stage is something called the play. So nobody is going to just trust a random stranger, unless you're William Thompson, who creates trust very, very quickly on the streets of Manhattan in the 1800s. Um, so you really want to create some sort of emotional connection. You want people to trust you. You want there to be empathy. You want there to be some sort of a connection, some sort of rapport between the two of you. And actually, even if you think of Thompson, he did that very, very quickly. He dressed like the people who he approached. He spoke in their language. He approached them on their own terms. And we tend to instinctively trust people who are like us. That is a very, very quick Root to empathy and to liking someone else so he actually managed to do that in seconds which is which is brilliant and which good con artists do incredibly well so that's the next stage you know you need to get someone to identify with you to trust you to think of you not as a con artist but as kind of a great person someone they'd like to spend time with someone they could have a conversation with someone who's a potential friend if not an actual friend so once you do that Then you can start laying out some of your scheme. So what is it exactly, you know, that you want? And you don't actually ask for money. You don't ask for anything big right away. You just start kind of roping them in, hence the rope, um, where you just start telling your story. And that's, I think all of the, all of the different elements of this. Come into play right away because you already have kind of that trust and that you really need the storytelling, the emotional foundation that will make people overlook potential gaps in logic. So, so when we, when we're emotional, um, when we're involved in a story, we don't see logical inconsistencies. We don't see things that should be red flags to us. You know, we already want to believe it's true. And so we end up really kind of invested in this already from the get-go that's why building that emotional rapport early on is so incredibly important and you know the emotion can be of many different flavors um What underlies it is a good story. So there are good stories that are positive. There are good stories that are negative. It has to be a story that appeals to you. And obviously, if you've done the first stage, the put up well, then you know which story to tell and how to tell it to get the person maximally engaged on an emotional level so that the logic kind of falls away. And then you actually do something that people think, well, that's inconsistent. How in the world you know, why in the world would you do this? Um, because it involves you as the con artist actually taking a loss. So that's called the convincer where you actually – End up being convincing. So things are going well. So for instance, if you're, if it's a Ponzi scheme, if we're talking about, you know, a name that I think is familiar to most everyone, Bernie Madoff, um, you actually get the good returns on your money. Um, you, if you're Lance Armstrong, you actually, you know, win the Tour de France and he did it without doping originally. So you have actually good faith proof, um, that, that you're capable and that you're in good hands. So that by the time things start actually going wrong, which is called the breakdown, where you're literally breaking the mark down, people don't see it as a breakdown. They don't see it for what it is. Instead, they say, oh, you know, this is just a blip. Everything is actually going just fine. Because if this were a real con, then, you know, then this wouldn't be happening. There wouldn't be any blips like this in a real con. You know, I'd still be getting great returns. Everything would still be going well. And so you end up convincing yourself. Um, and that is kind of one of the ultimate takeaways. By the time that you get to this stage in the confidence game, the con artist can just sit back and smile because we are just conning ourselves so that by the time that you know, you're basically done. And these are the parts of the con that kind of start blurring together. Um, the send, the touch, um, that's when you're really kind of you're done. Um, the con artist has taken you for for all your worth, um, but you don't really realize it yet. And you often don't realize it at all. So the blow off, which is the final stage, um, the blow off and the fix, which is basically when the con artist convinces you not to go to authorities and to kind of, to, to uh, remain, remain uh, in the game, so to speak. Um, a lot of people don't even need that because first, they might not want to admit to themselves that they've been conned because they've conned themselves so thoroughly. But the second part of it is even if they do realize that they often don't want their reputation to suffer, and so they end up just kind of being quiet about it. And so the con artists almost never need to revert to that final stage. It just kind of resolves in their favor, which is why, by the way, con artists often operate for decades and decades and decades without being caught. This is really depressing, but (laughs) (laughs) so each of these
1: stages relies on kind of psychological aspects of us, you know, things that we want to believe? Why do these particular, why do these methods work on us so well?
2: I think they work for a variety of reasons. But the most fundamental of them is that, you know, generally, as a species, we want to believe in a better world. I mean, we're an incredibly hopeful species. We hope for the best. We hope that Tomorrow is going to be better than today was. I mean, that's kind of what, what keeps us going. Um, and we want things to work out. We, we want meaning. We want things to actually matter. So think about, you know, think about what happens if tomorrow, if you actually go through life thinking, Oh no, tomorrow's going to be pretty crappy. Um, today's pretty crappy. Tomorrow's probably going to be worse. The day after is probably going to be even worse. I mean, life is just terrible. Um, that actually starts looking remarkably like, a condition that, unfortunately, a lot of people suffer from, which is clinical depression, where you don't have any more motivation, where you say, well, what's the point then? You know, Why am I going to go on living if, if life is so terrible? And it turns out that the only people who don't have this optimistic um, illusion, this positivity bias, this kind of hopefulness about themselves and about the world are the clinically depressed. Um, and so you start seeing, well, on the one hand, that hopefulness makes it easier for people to con you. On the other hand, it's incredibly psychologically beneficial. I mean, it's crucial to getting us motivated, to getting us to kind of think and plan ahead. It's fundamental to who we are as human beings. And so it's a trade-off because it enables you to get through life and to excel at life and to not get bogged down. But it also leaves you vulnerable to people who sell you that more hopeful version of the world rather than reality, because we don't see reality for what it is. I mean, if you actually saw yourself in realistic terms, you'd get very depressed very quickly. Um, no, oh, thanks, wants- Maria. I feel really <laughs> good welcome. about that. You're welcome. Bethany. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Same goes for me. <laughs> nobody wants to be told the truth about themselves. You know, I... Don't want people to know that, you know what, I didn't sleep well last night, so I look like crap this morning. I'd like people to say, oh, have you done something new with your hair? You look lovely. That'll make me much happier. If someone says, ooh, rough night, that's gonna, that's gonna be a really tough day. If someone says, you know, Maria, you're a, you're just a very mediocre writer, um, and I, I would probably start crying, um, in, in inside, if not on the outside. Um, so, so we don't often, like being told the hard truth we like that that kind of that glossy version of the world and that's exactly what con artists feed into
1: well so what's interesting about this to me is that you know we we say we don't you were saying we don't like hearing hard truths um but most of the people who are listening to this program are probably pretty smart people Mm-hmm. And they probably think they can hear hard truths. They take <laughs> criticism well. Um, they would probably never get conned. But of you course. maintain in your book that pretty much anyone can be conned.
2: Yes. Why? Um, well, because it's so funny. So um, one of the funniest studies that I came across um, had to do with explaining these illusions to people. First, you have people rank themselves on a bunch of different qualities. Um, and normally what you see is a positivity bias, right? You're above average on everything that's good, including being a good judge of character, which is crucial to not getting conned. Um, and your ability to spot deception and all of these things. Um, then you tell them, okay, there's this thing. Um, called the positivity bias. And there's this thing called the superiority illusion. And all of these, you kind of explain how it works. And then you tell them, okay, um, do you want to go back and redo some of your answers? And what you end up finding is that People often will go even more in the direction that they'd already gone, because they say, okay, I understand all of these biases. And I totally get that they exist, but they don't apply to me. (laughs) So that to me is just hilarious, because you have that bias, when it comes to that bias which just shows how strong it is. So you'll say, you know what? I totally get it. makes perfect sense. And I'm sure that the vast majority of the population is this way. But I can hear criticism. I understand what I'm really like. Um, I'm someone who really sees reality. Um, and obviously, uh, if that were true for everyone who thinks that that's true about them, this bias wouldn't exist.
1: Basically, what this comes down to is we get conned because fundamentally, most of us deep down believe we're better than everybody else.
2: Um, yeah, that's that's a huge part of it. And I think the other part of it um, is the exact same reason why we have organized religion, that we really look for meaning. We don't like uncertainty. We don't like ambiguity. We don't like things that happen for no reason we like stories that explain things that make sense. And that's also what con artists give us. They give us a version of the world that makes sense rather than the messy version that we have. And to be perfectly honest, we prefer that the messy world is not a world that and this is all kind of the same thing in the sense that, you know, you want to believe in a world that makes sense. Um, that's a better world to live in.
1: But there are some people who do get conned and they don't they don't get conned once or twice in their lives or they get conned over and over and over again they throw good money yep. after bad they fall for <laughs> new cons every other week are there specific things about these people like personality traits um or foibles that make them exceptionally susceptible
2: so there's one um there's one thing that actually does mean it does kind of predispose people to getting conned. Um, and that's not a personality trait, um, so much as it is uh state of life so are you someone who's emotionally vulnerable are you and this can be something that's created by circumstances so it could be you know a life transition for instance um positive or negative you know you could someone might have just died um someone might have been born um you might have gone through a divorce you might have just gotten married you might have lost your job you might have gotten a new job and kind of moved across country What ends up happening in all of those situations is your frame of reference gets disrupted. And so when we were talking a bit earlier about kind of our need for certainty and our dislike of, of messiness, well, that comes to a head on those types of transitional moments. And so that's what makes a lot of people vulnerable. And unfortunately, you know, that state can persist for a while and being conned once can actually be self-reinforcing in terms of the emotional vulnerability. And so people in those types of situations are much more likely victims. And when I said that it can be circumstance, but it doesn't need to be, um, there are people who, and it's also because of circumstances, but not because of one specific event, who don't have for whatever reason, who haven't developed a strong sense of self. They don't know who they are, and they still look for external ways of figuring that out. Um, and I learned, um, so, so I spoke when I was researching this book with some cult infiltrators, so people who actually um, try to get people out of cults, and cults, if you think about it, are kind of the ultimate con. It's a spiritual con. Um, it's kind of the most, playing around with the most fundamental beliefs, That we have about the world. And what they find is that in order to resist these cults, you have to have a very strong sense of self, a very strong center. And if you don't, you start kind of falling for those types of things. And so a lack of that sense of center, which can be lacking for a variety of different reasons, um, is something that can make you susceptible. And then the final reason we have repeat victims is what you and I were talking about at the beginning of the conversation: how good we are at conning ourselves so we really can rationalize away just about anything we hate cognitive dissonance you know we when we have two different things that don't actually mesh and it's much much easier to say oh i've never been conned than to say you know what maybe i'm not as good a judge of character as i thought um because you don't want to change your perception of yourself in a negative direction so instead you say oh no no Um, that wasn't a con and you give 50 million rationalizations for why it wasn't a con and because you've already rationalized it so incredibly thoroughly, um, you've primed yourself to fall for the sometimes the exact same con. This is
1: Science for the People. We'll be back right after this. Stay tuned.
0: Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, collection of blogs podcasts and video content focusing on science and critical thinking to find out where science for the people airs near you or to listen to past episodes check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca you'll also find links to support us at patreon to connect with us on facebook and twitter and to subscribe to the podcast in itunes and now back to the show
1: Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm here with Maria Konnikova, the author of The Confidence Game. So, Maria, you're just telling me that pretty much everyone can get conned. No one is really immune. But presumably, there are ways that people can avoid being conned. There are things you can look out for. What can people do? Are there ways to train ourselves to see those red flags?
2: um unfortunately not as such in the sense that um good con artists you don't see them coming you can't pick them out out of a lineup so here's one thing that i learned when i met with con artists and by the way this is the reason i stopped meeting with them um you don't meet them and you say oh you're a con artist you meet them and you say oh you know you're a really nice guy like you're a nice girl like i i like you You, I, I sort of see where you're coming from. Yeah, you're not a bad person. You know, I can see you're not a con artist. You just, yeah, you had some bad breaks and you start believing it because they are just really kind of charming, gregarious people who don't look. It's, it's not like you suddenly meet with a sleazy salesman. That's not what con artists are. The artistry in it is making it so that you have no idea that there's anything Wrong that there, that there's any, anything you should be looking out for. I mean, think of some of the greatest or at least most famous con artists of our time that we've already talked about. Bernie Madoff, Lance Armstrong. People didn't think of them as kind of sleazy wheeling and dealing. To this day, I actually get audience members when I talk about the book who get really mad at me for lumping Lance Armstrong in with these people. And they say, no, he's a great guy. He's not a con artist. And they just go off, um, because he's so charming and we really don't want to believe that he is a con artist and we make excuses for him. So that's kind of step one of, of realizing that there aren't red flags in the sense, in the sense that you might think of red flags, like, Oh, this is what a con artist looks like. But understanding that actually helps you avoid getting conned because in a strange way, if you think that you can spot red flags, if you think you're a great judge of con- of character in other people, then if you don't see red flags, if you like someone, you take that as proof that they're not a con artist. If, however, you understand that there are no universal signs of lying. By the way, there aren't. You cannot tell if someone is a good liar if they're lying. Anything that people have told you is just either folk wisdom or has been disproven. What um, I thought everybody, you
1: always get dudes who scratch their noses, right? I thought.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you look up, right? If you look up, this is one of my favorite theories. If you look up into the right, you're thinking. But if you look up into the left, um, you're lying, or maybe it's the opposite. Um, but there, yeah, people have these very elaborate theories and you stutter and you turn red and, you know, you fidget and all of these things happen. Of course, of course. And your nose starts growing, by the way.
1: <laughs> mine does um,
2: yeah so does mine and it gets a little pointy um and sometimes it sprouts a few branches but but any case so if we don't if we don't if we kind of draw a fresh start and say okay it's a blank slate we can't tell then if you don't see a red flags you can st- you, it gives you permission, and not just permission, but it tells you, you know what, you should still be skeptical. What I always say is the single best approach that we can have, not just to situations but to new people because often con artists um, are people who you're just meeting for the first time or who you've met recently and have become friends with but um, not someone you've known for 20 years, although that can obviously happen as well, um, is that old kind of golden dictum of journalism, trust but verify. So I'm not saying like, d- distrust everyone you meet, but I'm saying that if you trust them, that doesn't mean they're good. You still have to have some verification in place. And so that's, I think, a really good approach to trying to, and that doesn't mean you won't fall for a con at some point in your life, but it will make you less likely to fall for a lot of them if you actually go through that verification process. And if you go through it, even when things are really, really wonderful and you really don't want to verify, I mean, think about it this way. Your friend starts dating a new guy And you see lots of red flags um, because you're an objective observer. By the way, this is the other thing about cons. People from the outside can often see them because they don't have the same emotional involvement because a con artist hasn't been working them emotionally. People on the inside can't see it because they're emotionally involved. You cannot be objective about yourself. You're already subjective. You're already emotional. So your friend meets this new guy, is completely smitten. You see all these red flags, you talk to your friend and you say, hey, um, you know, maybe you want to check up on some of these things, you know, trust, but verify. What does your friend tell you? Does she say, you know, oh, Bethany, thank you for being such a good friend. You're absolutely right. Or does she say, you just don't want me to be happy. You're a killjoy. You're terrible. Like, I don't, I don't want to hear this.
1: yeah they usually say they don't want to hear this
2: so that that's why it's easier said than done when you're actually happy and when things are going well nobody wants to verify because that old kind of saying of if, if it seems too good to be true it is we all agree with that but when it happens to other people objectively we can see that that's true but subjectively when it's happening to us we don't think it's too good. We actually think, you know, I deserve this. Like, I, I deserve to meet this wonderful guy. You know, you don't want me to be happy. So everything I'm saying sounds like great advice, um, but it's really, really difficult to follow.
1: It mostly sounds like, so my main takeaway from this book should be always Google your friend's Tinder dates.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And Hinge and any new app that might come out. Yes. <laughs> that's the, that's the bottom line so
1: you do also talk in the book a little bit about how people become con artists i mean i i would like to hope that most people are not really born to be con artists um but you note <laughs> yep. in the book that power corrupts and that people kind of can become yeah. con men easily what goes on there
2: yeah, um, so one of the things that I really want to stress um, is that con artists aren't born, they are made. And it's a combination, as with all things, it's a combination of nature and nurture. Um, so people say, oh, well, you, you know, you know, you can't. You can't go down that road unless you're already rotten to the core. Well, that's not really true. So yes, there does need to be a predisposition, and I talk about some of those things. I talk about the dark triad of traits, for instance, which is psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. Um, but con artists may or may not have them. They might have some. They might have all. They might have none. But there is some sort of a predisposition. But opportunity is absolutely crucial. So what kind of situation do you find yourself? So I write about this guy, Ferdinand Waldo de Mara, um, who's known as the great imposter, because for decades and decades and decades, he was able to impersonate so many different people, you know, surgeons, he founded a college, he was a professor, um, he almost built a bridge in Mexico, Um, he worked as a prison warden in Texas, um, All of these just crazy feats. He'd never finished high school. But then if you look at his bio, you know, was he always going to be a con artist? Well, maybe, but maybe not, because he was born quite wealthy and he had a very supportive family. Um, then they lost all of their money. And within that same year, his sister died in a really tragic freak accident, ice skating. Um, she hit her head and had a hemorrhage. And he was really close with his sister. Um, so all of a sudden, you lose your status, you lose your family support. Um, and that's when he actually committed his first con. Um, So you can see an alternative reality where his dad doesn't go bankrupt, where his sister doesn't go ice skating, and where Damara ends up, he's incredibly intelligent, going to college um, and b- becoming a professor for real. Um, but once you get into that situation, once you actually go down that road um, and you get away with it, most people who had the predisposition enough that they went down that road – um, so that's, that's the other, let me caveat it by saying that in the exact same circumstance, if you don't have the predisposition, you know, lots of people would never turn to con artistry. So predisposition does have to be there. But you can definitely see, um, an alternative reality where he's not a con artist. Um, and once he does go down that road, he can't turn back because that becomes addictive. That predisposition actually Somehow feeds on the power of knowing that you have control over other people's lives and realities, that you can create this other world and nobody knows. And that's a huge rush. And someone like Damara had plenty of opportunities to go straight, so to speak. Um, He got lots of business opportunities. He could have made a lot of money. He never made money off his cons, um, which I think is a very important point. A lot of people think it's all about money. It's not. Um, It's all about power. Um, and sometimes people derive power from money, but sometimes they don't. Um, and so he never took the opportunities to go straight, even though he always told himself that he would, um, because I think it was just too addictive, that rush of power over other people. Um, and his was a pretty, you know, it's a sad childhood, but then there are people who, who the opportunity is a little bit different. So say, you know, you're in an organization where people look the other way if you kind of cut a corner. What if you're, you know, your performance isn't great? So I, I write about, um, the CFO of a company who fudged the books one one quarter when there was when the money just wasn't right, um, and ended up um, fudging it more and more and more because obviously things didn't change, and then went from fudging the books to you know booking private jets with the company card and all of these things. So it just kind of went way down that slope because he kept getting away with it. Um, so I think that we need to. We need to kind of look at both sets of circumstances, and then we also have to look at the self-reinforcing nature of what successful con artistry does to you.
1: You're listening to Science for the People. I'm here with Maria Konnikova, author of The Confidence Game. Maria, why did you decide to write a book about cons? What drew you to these people or the topic?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I've actually been fascinated by them for a long time because I think that it's such a I mean, it's such an interesting process to think about the fact that oftentimes they don't commit crimes. I mean, we were totally complicit. A lot of time in what happens, not always, but but we kind of we give them things. They don't take. You know, these are not criminals who break into your house. They don't mug you. They don't you know do do terrible things against your will. Um, you give them your trust willingly. And I thought that that is such a fascinating phenomenon, and it had been kind of percolating in my mind for a long time. And then, um, very prosaically, I was watching a David Mamet film. Uh, from the 80s, House of Games, um, where the protagonist is someone I really identified with. Um, it was a woman who was a psychologist, um, actually a clinical psychologist, so she saw patients. She'd just written a best-selling book. She was really kind of savvy about human nature, um, and she fell for a really intricate long con, and it did not end well uh, for her. And I just... I thought, you know, if someone like that, obviously this is a fictional movie, but how does someone like that fall? And if someone like that can fall, then it means nobody is really immune. And I found out that no one had ever really explored it. Um, and I thought that it was really important to explore because I wanted ultimately – to give people permission to be victims and to give people permission to come forward and to destigmatize it. To say, look, you know, it happens to brilliant people. Um, it doesn't make you greedy. It doesn't make you stupid. It doesn't make you gullible. It doesn't make you any of these bad things. Um, it's something that is just a fundamental part of human nature and could happen to anyone. Um, and so part of the, part of my goal in writing this book was to destigmatize what it means to fall for a con.
1: Because there is a lot of a lot of shame. I'm recalling Absolutely. the uh, the incident you talked about with the professor, and I remember this: um, the professor at Chapel Hill who was totally certain that this foreign bikini model wanted to marry him, and yes. what she really <laughs> wanted him to do was smuggle cocaine.
2: Well, to and this it wasn't day, even he's a laughingstock. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he he is a laughingstock, um, and it's. I mean, you become a pariah because people. People are so judgmental. I mean, we are so supportive of victims in so many contexts, but there are some contexts where we're incredibly judgmental. Now, con artistry is not one, is not the only one, but it certainly is one of them, where we just give all of these character and value judgments right away. And we say, you know what, you deserved it. Um, to this professor, Paul Frampton, we say, you know, how could you have been so stupid? Of course, a bikini model isn't going to want to date you. Of course, it's someone else. Of course, there's going to be all this stuff. But of course, yeah, sure, in retrospect, when it's not happening to you. Um, and we just we just always think that we know exactly what we would have done that it would never have happened to us and that this speaks very poorly of the person it happened to. I mean, we we really talk down to victims of cons. Talk about Bernie Madoff. I mean, people were so vicious to his victims. They're like, yeah, well, you're just rich people who deserved it. No, nobody deserves to get scammed. And a lot of times these weren't rich people. These were people who gave, who were part of his congregation, who gave him all of their money. Um, And this ruined them, they went bankrupt. And they, you know, sometimes this actually led to loss of life. I mean, con artists really devastate their victims. And we don't want to acknowledge that we want to blame the victim, because it's also incredibly convenient to do that. If we blame the victim, then we conveniently separate ourselves from the pool of possible victims. We say, oh, well, if you're greedy, or you're dishonest, or you're just, you know, wealthy, you know, know it all, of course, you had it coming, or you're this or you're that, I'm not. So this could not happen to me. We don't want to put ourselves in the same pool. Because if you say actually, you know, it could happen to anyone, then you're also admitting that you could be in that exact same position, and you wouldn't know better. And everyone wants to think that they'd know better.
1: Yeah, so you actually talked to a lot of people who were conned,
2: Mm-hmm. Um, including people I
1: know, which was <laughs> a little <laughs> surprising. Um, but you were talking with these people. Was it very difficult? Are, are people very, is it, is it hard for people to talk about being conned? And, and how do these victims
2: react when
1: you talk to them? Yeah. Uh,
2: it is incredibly difficult. And some people are happy to talk and they've talked about it a lot. Other people, um a lot of the people i spoke with it was the first time they'd spoken to anyone about it um and i had a lot of really tough conversations i mean i had multiple people break down um when they were talking to me and by breakdown i mean just some someone hysterical i had people tell me for the first time um that things that their families didn't know like that they had attempted suicide for instance um it was really emotionally I mean, it, it was an incredibly emotionally draining project, um, in a way that I didn't expect. And I, you know, I actually had some really tough choices to make in writing the book. Um, I ended up not using a lot of those stories, um, because it would have been a very different book if I had talked about all of those kind of devastating conversations. And so I kind of, I tried to find a balance where I do, you know, I am sympathetic to the victims and I do talk about, you know, a lot of the pain they go through, but, um, it's not just about that. Um, even though it could have very easily been just about that, um, given the amount of material I did not use, um, where people, you know, it's, it's both freeing. I think a lot of people afterwards said they're really, really glad they talked to me. And after the book came out, actually, I get a lot of emails from a lot of people, um, which is wonderful. I'm very glad that they feel like they can, actually tell me about this. So some find it very cathartic. Um, but it's also others don't want to use their names still, because they just feel so incredibly ashamed. They feel like it shouldn't have happened. They feel like they blame themselves. Society blames them and then they blame themselves as well.
1: And I did notice in the book that you kind of rely on points of view from people who had been conned and also studies on persuasion. but you actually don't really talk have, in, involve the direct voices of con men. And you mentioned that you stopped talking to con men. <laughs> Why?
2: Well, because I found myself doing exactly what um people like Bob Crichton, who was the biographer who wrote about Tamara, which is you start falling for their cons and you start shifting reality to actually match what they tell you, um, which is not true. Um, and so I found myself, um, being conned by them and falling down that kind of down that rabbit hole of trying to explain and rationalize what they do, um, which they do it so well. I mean, they convince you that they're really good people. They, and then if you actually just dispassionately look at the evidence, you see, wait, no, you know, you're not a good person for this reason, this reason, this reason, and this reason. It's just very, very difficult to separate out emotion from that dispassionate appeal once you speak to them and their voices. Sure. I could have also made a very different choice and put in all of these funny conversations. And I do sometimes, you know, there are some con artist voices who, who made it into the book. Um, but I just decided that, you know what? I, I don't want to portray that glamorized, skewed version of reality. It's much more important for me to get the story right. So something that people don't really know about The Great Imposter, which was Creighton's book, is that it was completely rewritten. So the first draft was just flat out rejected by Random House because it was quite negative. Um, on Demara, and then he wrote this. And then he decided that the first draft was wrong anyway. Um, and he wrote this thing, which really kind of mythologized Demara in a way, um, even though Demara was a terrible, terrible person um, who yeah, this is the guy sur- who
1: impersonated <laughs> a ship's doctor in the navy and performed surgery with like a biology
2: book. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this is not a good, this is not a good guy. This is someone who was like, you know, yeah, maybe I'll kill you. But you know what, I kind of want to do this. Let's go. (laughs) so so he was he's not a not a good human being but the book makes him into this glamorous figure um and i didn't want the same thing to happen to me and i saw it happening i actually ended up deleting a lot of material um when i actually reread it later when i was no longer charmed by the person i wrote about and i said oh my god how did i write this um so that's where that choice came from
1: so you also went to a psychic for this book, you actually went <laughs> at the beginning, you went, you went to a psychic. Um, how did that experience affect your views about being conned?
2: <laughs> it was, I mean, it was, you see why it works because I obviously was going in for research purposes and I didn't hide, I ended up, you know, just being, pretty, pretty honest, not in the sense that I said, hi, I'm a writer, and I'm writing about you as a con artist, but in the sense that like, I didn't try to hide different personal facts, I just came dressed as myself, just to see what would happen. Um, And you start seeing that the types of approaches that psychics use, the types of sentences and phrases they throw your way, um, the type of atmosphere that they create, it's really appealing. And you, you start almost subconsciously applying it to yourself. So a lot of these phrases, a lot of these things can apply to basically anyone, but you start personalizing it. They don't personalize it, but you do. But then you think that the insight came from them. It's this just totally fascinating process. And I could see that if you go in, you know, without, with less skepticism, if you go in and you're vulnerable, I can absolutely see how people end up believing it. Because it can just feel good. You know, I actually felt really nice after leaving because um, I was like, oh, you know, this has made me look at my career in a new light. This has made me consider all these different questions. Like it's almost, it can be like a therapeutic experience. Um, obviously, it can be a really terrible experience and people lose hundreds of thousands of dollars and psychics wreck lives. But you can see how they reel you in with a lot of these kind of approaches that put you at ease, get you talking, and help you kind of see your life differently. Um, one of the funniest experiences, by the way, that I've had since since writing this book um, is I'm obviously very negative on psychics in the book. Um, and I come away saying that you know there are psychics are con artists. And a lot of people um told me, you know, I agree with you mostly. Um, I know that psychics in general are con artists, but there are exceptions. My psychic is real. (laughs) Everyone is getting conned except for me. Exactly. And the number of times that I've heard that, it's just, it's, at this point, it's hilarious. I mean, it's very high double digits. Um, don't think it's quite triple digits, but I've heard it many, many, many times, and every single time I just smile. I've stopped engaging because what are you, what am I going to say? <laughs> so most of the evidence
1: in this book, um, you go through a lot of scientific evidence. It's based on psychology studies, and right now psychology is in something of a replication crisis, um, in which you know there's a lot of psychologists going around trying to replicate key, very supported findings mm-hmm. and having a lot of difficulty. The effect is not as large, or they just can't replicate well-known um, psychological effects at all. Um, how well supported do you think the studies you used for this book on persuasion and manipulation are?
2: Well, um, that's a, it's, I mean, it's an impossible question to answer, to be perfectly honest. Um, because of course I think they're well supported, otherwise I wouldn't have used them. And whenever, I mean, whenever I write about psychology in general, not just for this book, um, I always try to really do my homework in terms of looking at the whole field and seeing, you know, how long has this existed? Um, what is the kind of evidence we have? What's the, you know, what's the body of evidence rather than, oh, there's this one cool study. And so all of the effects that I wrote about, um, I really tried to find things that really had a lot of support. Um, and a lot of them, so a lot of the replication problems are in things like priming, for instance, that's, I think, was one of the initial things. Things that were always very kind of fragile effects. Um, anyone who studies priming would tell you, you know, well, if you are aware of the prime, it doesn't work. Like, there are all of these stipulations about them. But the things that I write about, a lot of them are cognitive biases where there are no stipulations. I mean, if you look at, you know, work of, and I don't actually write a lot, um, about Kahneman's work in this particular book. Um, but a lot of people are familiar with him. So let me just use him as an example. I mean, it's all just very pure cognition. Um, this is the way we interpret evidence. And that's been, you know, it's very easy to replicate. Um, because you can just you can just say, Okay, this is the way that you um that you read the finding this is this is what you um see this is how you interpret it this is how you answer this question, this is how you make this probability judgment i mean these are things that are incredibly robust. you can stop stop someone on the street and find this effect in a second by giving them a paper and pencil test so I try to rely a lot on those types of things where you have just robust cognitive mechanisms where we have not just an effect, but a very good explanation for why it happens. And I think it also, it jives with a lot of things that I've learned over the years. Um, and over the years, I don't mean like from my folk experience, I mean, you know, during my, um, PhD in psychology, um, during, during kind of looking at Just the body of psychology literature, period. It jives with a lot of things that psychologists know about how human nature works, um, how our mind works. Um, So I, you know, I would feel very comfortable, for instance, saying that cognitive dissonance is not a finding that we're going to find disproven in the next two years. I even think that some of the things that are suffering from a so-called replication crisis might still exist. Um, it just might be in a weaker form. We might have to say, okay, you know what, this was really, this was overblown. This only exists in this context in this particular way, which is still great. It still means it exists, but we just have to take a step back and... Um, figure out, you know, how robust is it? um, And where is it coming from? And when is it actually going to motivate human behavior?
1: So most of the issues behind the replication crisis are are very innocent. I'm I'm thinking about this, because um, when we're talking about cons and fraud, Mm -hmm. you know, most of the time when scientists can't replicate a study, there are plenty of reasons. Variables don't really translate. The sample is small. There's mm-hmm. there's lots of plenty of innocent, totally legit reasons yep. why things fail to replicate. But yep. there are also con men in
2: academia. Absolutely. And academia, I mean, this is one of the reasons I did not go into academia. And this is not just a pet peeve, but a battle that I think that everyone should be fighting about academia um, is, and this is, I think, I think it's um, actually a symptom of a broader thing that's happening. To our society, but you really see it in academia with this whole mindset of publisher perish, which um, really is incentivizing the wrong types of research and the wrong types of behaviors. Because what I mean by long type wrong types of research are you have to do research that you can publish quickly. So, for instance, my graduate advisor was Walter Michel. Um, he did the famous marshmallow studies back in the sixties, which still replicate. <laughs> Um, and he, his work is all longitudinal. He didn't, I think he had one publication, maybe zero when he got his first job. You couldn't take on a project like that today because no one's doing longitudinal work because you can't publish and you need the publications. And you also have, you know, people who are, you basically start running all of these analyses. You start trying to do p hacking, which nobody used to do, um, in the past when, you know, you just did a simple t test and if it's significant, wonderful and if it's not okay then I don't really have a strong effect Um, which by the way is still a great rule of thumb that I always used for my own research but um, these days the incentives are all wrong you want to just publish, 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 if you're going to not just get tenure, but get a job anywhere. And this, what we were talking about earlier with predisposition and opportunity, I mean, talk about creating an entire field where the opportunity is there. Not everyone is going to start fudging data points, obviously. People will just work really hard. Some people will just give up and say it's not for them. But the opportunity is there for everyone. That's the, that's the incentive structure. And the journals want, sensationalist findings. I mean the journals are actually perpetuating this by saying we're going to only publish you if your if your finding is really strong, if it's really counterintuitive, if it's this, if it's that. So if we want the best publications then you have to kind of push it in that direction. So it's a complete you can't blame of course I blame researchers who commit fraud, but they didn't commit fraud in a vacuum.
1: And I think you have an excellent point that you know the scientific community right now it's a very high pressure Environment. Are there any other careers um, or fields where there's that high pressure environment that kind of lends itself to (laughs) the slippery slope of fraud and cons?
2: Well, you know what? That's why I said that this is just a microcosm of what I feel is happening in society in general. We have really revved up the kind of Protestant ethic. Um, to a degree that's really, really scary um in every single walk of life. I mean, people and we've exported it. By we I mean the United States. We've exported it worldwide to the point where you have, you know, places like Spain, which used to have siestas, and siestas are very good for a reason. People are not productive when it's really hot outside. There's a very good function for all of this stuff, no longer have them because you have to be productive and work, 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 work. Because we mistake that output for action quality work and so people stop sleeping people start cutting all of these corners in order to show FaceTime in order to show productivity um, and it's just completely asinine completely backwards I mean you could get me talking for five hours about this and I would not run out of things to say that's how passionate I feel about this but to answer your question very directly you can see this in every single career you see it in startups you see it in our profession you see it in journalism um, and we we do see a lot of fraud in journalism. Um you see it in finance, you see it in law in very in egregious ways but also in small ways where you you know you fudge a few billable hours here and there. Well, that's actually fraud. You know, that's that's not cool, but people do it all the time. Um, you see it in business settings, not just finance settings. I mean, it's just on and on and on. I think we see it in more and more walks of life, even things that you think of as, you know, oh, well, you're very creative. I mean, one of the con artists that I talked about is a musician who felt <laughs> like he had to, you know, just jump that extra through that extra hoop and commit fraud in order to be a truly great musician. And you know what? It worked. Um, so we really, as a society, are reinforcing the wrong sorts of behaviors and thinking of the wrong sorts of metrics as metrics of success. So
1: high pressure careers and high pressure societies, they might, you know, lead us to cut corners, but they also put us under stress, which makes us more unsure and more likely to get conned. (laughs) I, I will admit, reading this book made me extremely paranoid. Um, Did it change your views on (laughs) cons
2: and society? (laughs) Oh, my God. I I went through a period of – it was just terrible um, after writing this book where I reread what I'd written. um, And I just said, oh, my God, this is terrible. Uh, The world is a terrible place. Everyone is evil. I am just going to lock myself in a room um, and throw away the key, which is basically what I was doing when I was writing anyway. So it's all good. (laughs) I'm just not – not going to meet anyone new. Um, and I just became very, it it was very, um, not disappointing, but disillusioning. You know, I've, I felt very disillusioned in humanity. Um, but then I've come around since then. Um, I've realized that, you know what, yeah, um, these exist, bad people exist. But you know what, the whole world isn't rotten. And yes, we have this high pressure society. And there are lots of things that will make people cut corners. But if you look at it, the vast majority of people don't cut corners. You know, even if we're in this pressure cooker, most people are still fundamentally honest. Um, and most people are not going to steal from me. Um, I can often, you know, leave my laptop in a coffee shop to go to the bathroom and it's going to be there when I come back. Um, I will not do this in some coffee shops, but, you know, I live in Manhattan. So, <laughs> so, so what do you expect? Um, but, I, I kind of kind of come around to the point of view that yeah you know to be to be crass about it shit happens um, and I might get conned um, and I may get conned badly um, and there are really crappy people out there but there are also really good people out there um, and I don't want to give up my hope in humanity just because there are bad actors what I want to do is try to figure out you know can we make society can we can we limit those opportunities that make people turn to con artistry can we even though So the predisposition will always be there. And some people will make the opportunity no matter what. Um, Can we try to change the circumstances? Because that's something we can change.
1: Maria, thank you so much for chatting with us about this book.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Bethany. This has been a real pleasure.
1: So The Confidence Game was fantastic. It was eye-opening, and I'm now 100% sure that every new person I meet is about to con me. Thanks for that. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Maria and her new book, The Confidence Game, we've linked to her site and information about the book at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave us a review. And if you are so inclined to drop us a few dollars through Patreon, we'd love to have it. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week on Science for the People.
0: Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivalon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind the scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell.